Today you're going to hear of two unbelievable miracle stories that have happened. This is first-hand reporting to Dick Dirksen. By the way, Dick Dirksen is an amazing person. He goes around the world constantly on the Maranatha ventures and trips. So much so when he goes to the United Airline counter now, they say, well, where are you going now, Dick? Uh, the people know him at the airline counters out of Sacramento. Um, just an amazing story. But he, he doesn't know sometimes what city he's in. He doesn't even know what happened last. He's it, it, just always on a whirlwind trip around the world um, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's just an exciting person, and he's committed to the Lord. Today, however, you're going to hear miracle stories that he relates, that he heard firsthand from the person involved. It's an amazing, amazing story, along with his message. So I'm glad you came today. I think you will be too when we're through. Pastor Tana was the president of the Solomon Island Seventh-day Adventist Church. Well, that meant he was responsible for a majority of the people who lived in the Solomon Islands. There's an awful lot of Adventists in the Solomons. In fact, I have an email that came to me a couple of days ago from uh, South Pacific Division. Miranatha is being challenged to do a whole bunch of churches and schools in Papua New Guinea, uh, Fiji, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, and I can go on down a long list. And it does include places like Bora Bora. Yes. I've been waiting to be able to do so. There's two places I want to build. Bora Bora. I just think we ought to be doing churches there, don't you? I mean, what a wonderful place to have to go and volunteer. And the other is Timbuktu. I've always, Dad always used to say, you keep doing that, I'm going to send you to Timbuktu. Well, I want to go. <laughs> I mean, I've earned it. <laughs> we now have a request from Dr. Gilbert Wari, who is the president of the West Central African Division, to build a school campus for 200 students in Timbuktu, Mali. I can hardly wait to go to that one. <clears throat> that is just going to be so much fun. So Timbuktu on one end, Bora Bora on the other, or Bali, you know, it's all right with me. I don't care which one. I just want to go someplace where there's water and palm trees and cannibals. And... Oh, so many stories I'd love to tell you the South Pacific. Our daughter, Juline, is the head of the Bible department at Longburn Adventist College in New Zealand. And so Brenda and I purposefully try to get to New Zealand once a year. Do you know you can't get to New Zealand on the way anywhere else? You got to just go to New Zealand. I mean, it's, there's no, it's not like going to Denver to get somewhere. It's a, it's a destination, not a stopping point. But we have fallen in love with the people. And one of the people I've fallen in love with in the South Pacific is Pastor Tana, Lawrence Tanabossi. Currently, his job is secretary of the uh, South Pacific Division. When I first met him, he was a pastor in the Solomon Islands, and he was still a fuzzy-wuzzy. Now, when I say fuzzy-wuzzy, does that sound like it's a, a pejorative comment? It does. It sounds like you call somebody a fuzzy-wuzzy today, that's, they're not going to look up at you and say, oh, thank you, that's very kind of you, no. But that's what Lawrence was. His hair stood out about that high, and it was brilliant, knotty, black. 
was just everything. In fact, he used to tell stories about the Allied pilots who crashed in his area, and his father and friends would actually take their airplanes, disassemble them, hide them in the jungle, and the Japanese troops would come by looking for, there was an Allied pilot that crashed here, we know. And they'd say, well, what? what? And all these Adventist fuzzy wuzzies had hid the pilot and hid the airplane, and when the enemy kind of moved away, they'd bring out the plane, reassemble it, and fly him home. <laughs> Great stories. Lawrence has stories. I've had the privilege in my life of talking to a lot of people who have stories. But Lawrence is the only person I know that in my conversations with him, I have now recorded 22 specific times in his life when angels in human form interacted with Lawrence. I got 22 of those. And uh, three weeks from now, I'm with him again in Australia and I'm ready for my next story. And he knows it. You know, we're, we send notes back and forth. It's all right, I'm ready for 23. And one of these days we're going to do a book. And it'll be in video and it will be from the Solomon Islands. Because he's got to tell those stories on the sands of the Solomons. Okay, all of that. And now I'm back to the beginning. Pastor Tana is the president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the Solomon Islands. One day he's driving his little yellow Volkswagen bug. And his cell phone rings. It's a blocked number. What, what do you do when you see a blocked number on your cell phone? Obama's calling! I know, no. <laughs> so he uh, answers the phone. Hello, Pastor Tana. The voice on the other end says, just a moment, please, sir, the premier. And he says, what? And a moment, the voice comes on, and it's the premier of Australia, prime minister, the chief dude. And uh, the guy says, Pastor Tanabasi, yes, sir. This is, yes, sir. Uh, as you know, there's a big battle going on in the Solomon Islands between the rebels and the government troops. Yes, sir, I'm aware of that, quite. Uh, as a Seventh-day Adventist leader, we know that you have members on both sides. That's true, sir. And you probably are the unique guy on all the islands to communicate with both sides. Well, possibly. I have a helicopter on the way to your house. In the helicopter is a specially encrypted cell phone. I want you to deliver it to the guerrilla leader. We can't get anything to him. I need to talk to him because I think there's a solution. But I'm asking you to deliver him the cell phone. Will you do that for me? Yes, sir. Thank you. The helicopter should be landing at your house in about five minutes. So Tana turned around. We hung up, prayed. <laughs> or maybe prayed and hung up. I'm not sure. Knowing Tana, he prayed, hung up, prayed, turned around, <laughs> prayed, drove home. He gets home. The helicopter is there. They hand him the encrypted cell phone and the instructions and say thank you, and the helicopter leaves. Tana turns around in his little yellow Volkswagen and goes to the place where there are, where there actually is a Maginot line. On one side of the guerrillas, on the other side of the government troops. He goes to the government commander, whom he knows, he's on the government side, and uh, explains that he needs to get across to see the guerrilla commander. He has been told he may not tell anybody what he's doing. 
And so he says, I need to get across. I have church members over there. I need to go. You know, he's, he starts fabricating this. I just got to get over there, okay? And the commander says, you're not going. I'm sorry. I don't know whatever it is you're doing, but you're not going. So just turn your little bright colored car around and go home. And Tana says, I have to go. No! So Tana turns around, goes back into the woods, kneels down, says, God, I don't know what you got going on in my life today, but I know you need me to go across over there, so please change the commander's mind. And so Tana gets his car, goes back, goes to the commander, and says, I need to go across the other side. And the guy says, you don't listen very well, do you? I said, no. They have a long conversation. Tana goes back into the trees, does all the prayer process again, comes back out again in his bright little yellow Volkswagen, goes to the commander and says, I need to go across. And the guy loses his temper. Go across then. I will personally open the bars so you can go across into no man's land. But you will not get 20 meters before we will open up with rocket-propelled grenades, with all the machine guns we've got, and you will be dead Adventist. Go! So Tana went out and got in his car. Turned it on. Now, and I don't know whether he prayed and turned it on and turned it on and prayed, but knowing Tana, I think he prayed and got in his car and put his key in and prayed and turned it on and prayed and just prayed. You ever, what was it Ellen White said? Prayer must be... Hello? It's just every, it's as common as breathing. Tanabasi is a man I know who prays as he breathes. He prays when he breathes in, he prays when he breathes out. He and God are on constant conversation. And so the bar comes up and Tana drives across. He gets about 20 meters into the no man's land between the government and the guerrillas and the foxholes open up on both sides. In this, it's a literal thing. You can see the emplacements come up out of the ground, and you can see as the tracer bullets, along with all the rest of the stuff that is being thrown at him, begins to come. Down underground, looking at their video screens, the government troops track what they're doing. RPGs, they blow his Volkswagen completely to nothing. They see it explode. They see the metal go. They can imagine the blood of Tanabasi, and they just blow it up as hard as they possibly can until there is nothing left of Tanabasi's car. When he gets to the other side, the gates come up. He drives his car through to the guerrilla commander. He gets out. He walks over to the commander and explains what's going on and hands him the cell phone. The commander says, thank you very much. And goes off in the corner and starts talking to the Premier of Australia. While Lawrence goes into town, there is food on the guerrilla side. There's very little food on the government side. So Tana goes into town. He goes to one of the local markets. He buys all the veggies he can find, the best stuff he can find. He packs four big bags of it and puts it in the back of his car. And then he turns around, goes back, the guerrilla commander says, Thank you, Tanabasi. And Pastor, <coughs> Pastor Tana says, I need to go back. And the guerrilla commander says, That's the stupidest request I've ever heard. And the bars go up, and Tanabasi drives across. Nothing happens. It's not a sound. He gets to the other side, the bars come up, he drives through, the bars go down. Nobody says a word. Nobody moves. 
he gets out of the car. Well, I guess he stops it. Does he pray and stop and get out? You know, he prays and does. Remember the old, what is it, Nehemiah? And I prayed to the Lord and said to the king, there's no, no commas, no periods, no nothing. It's, it's simultaneous actions. And he prayed to the Lord and said to the king, and Tanabas, he prayed to the Lord and gets out of his car. Reaches in the back, gets two bags of veggies. Walks to where he knows the door is, to the underground bunkers. The door opens. He goes down into the underground bunkers. There in the gun room, with all the video screens, watching everything in no man's land, are all the guys who killed him. They saw it happen. They saw his card disappear on the screen. He walks in, sets the vegetables down on the table. All the guys are leaned up against the far wall. They're seeing a ghost. They know they're seeing a ghost. This is absolutely terrifying. They're not, and, and there's just, it's just awful in this room. And Tana says, I went over to the market and I found some of the best vegetables. I know you can't get many of those here. You might enjoy them. And I got two more. I'll be right back. And he walks right out, turns his back on him and walks right out. Goes back to his car, gets the other two bags, brings them in, sets them down and says, any questions? And one of the guys said, we killed you. We saw you die. And yet you're here bringing us potatoes? Tomatoes? Stuff? Who are you? And Tanabasi said, I'm God's boy. And if you want to join me, I'll be in the Adventist church right over here on Saturday morning. Love to have you come. Bye. And he walked out. The next Sabbath, they were in church. If you go to the Solomon Islands today, where life is healed between the guerrillas and the government because the premier was able to broker a deal because he was able to talk to the right people and talk clearly on encrypted phones. You will meet deacons and elders in the Adventist church who manned machine guns and shot RPGs at Pastor Tanabasi. True story. What do you think of that story? Turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think of that story. You got 30 seconds. Go! <laughs> I just love that story. And when Tanabasi told us that story, Brenda and I were in his office in uh, Sydney. And the two of us were there, and Tanabasi was sitting on the edge of his desk, and we were just standing, and I said, uh, Lawrence, do you have any new angel stories? And he said, well, I have one from a year ago that you may not have heard. And he told me that story like that. And by the time he's through telling it, Brenda and I are just... <sighs> and I said, this really happened? This is crazy. What happened to your little yellow car? He said, I don't know. I sold it to somebody. It was no big deal. We said, it wasn't a car. I said, and the guys? Yeah, they make good elders and deacons. They, they know what God's about. <laughs> uh, I want you to come with me to the book of Gideon. It's in the Old Testament. 
It's found in the uh, collection called Judges. Judges chapter 6 is the book of Gideon. And I want to talk about prayer. Fair enough? Lawrence has taught me about prayer more than anybody I've ever met. And when I listen to Lawrence's stories, I mean, I could go on all night literally just telling you Lawrence's stories, and I wouldn't get them anywhere near close to as good as Lawrence tells them. Lawrence is very short. He is very Solomon Island. He is very soft-spoken. He never raises his voice. But Lawrence is so close to God that when you're with him, you can feel the angel's wings. It's that way. I am in awe. Gideon chapter 1. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Why does God do that? Just because we're bad, why does he give us to the enemy? Why doesn't he protect us and know that sooner or later we're going to come around? Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and otherites invaded the country. And they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. And they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They saved the goats. They were no big deal. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. How do you feel about that? If God is God, and I am praying that God will protect me, how will he let the Midianites in? Oh, but you, but Dick, you missed it. These Israelites weren't praying for God to protect them. They were praying for Baal to protect them. They were praying for the Asherah to protect them. They'd forgotten all about God. God had become a historical fact, not a personal friend. Catch that? A lot of Adventists I know who fit exactly into that situation. God is a historical fact, not a personal friend. And let me tell you, nobody's going to heaven because God's a historical fact. Uh -uh. God's taken friends to heaven, not history students. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, I have four points tonight. Are you ready for four? So you have, All of you have at least four fingers. Uh, you don't need to write it down, just put them down. Step number one, when your life is falling apart, when everything seems to be exploding, nothing's going right, everything is a disaster, what's the first thing you do? Call to God for help. It's right there. That's step one. Now, there's a problem with step one. God responds. And if you're in uh, Judges 6 with me, which is Gideon 1, you'll find that... Uh, Verse 7 is God's response. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Bummer. Why didn't he send an army? I mean, that would have been the kind. Why didn't he send a bunch of angels to wipe out the Midianites overnight? Why didn't he just solve it? Instead, he sends them a prophet. Okay, the prophet's words are recorded. Verse 8. Who said... 
and imagine that he shows up on the street corner in downtown San Francisco. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out from before for you. I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship all those guys, but you have not listened to me. And then he walks away. All the prophet did was remind them that they'd forgotten about God. That they had turned God into a historical fact rather than a personal experience. That's all the prophet did. Prophets are not always good friends. But they're always right. All the Israelites needed to hear was that simple reminder. You can't call out to me if you don't know me. How many times have I been haunted by that picture painted sometime long ago where all of those virgins come to the marriage feast and the bridegroom opens the little window in the door. You know, the door's got the funny little wrought iron uh, coverings on. It's just totally absurd. It never was that way, but you know, it's a good picture. And he opens it and he looks out and all the virgins look in and say, can we come in? We love you. And he says, I don't know you. And closes the grate. How can you say you don't know them? You say you don't know them if they have chosen not to know you. Did that just make sense? It's not God saying, I don't want to know you guys. I'll take all the ones who are blonde, but nobody else. Now, God doesn't do that. We decide not to know him. We live our life our way. And that takes me back to verse 1 of Gideon chapter 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Their evil was to forget him. To go on as if he was irrelevant. To just do their life without including God. To get up in the morning. To listen to Rush for two hours. To go on to something else and focus on the garbage of earth and never connect with the wealth of heaven. And when God answered, after they said, Help! He said, a little hard to answer you when you forgot me. Who are you? Do you know who I am? When you're in trouble, when things look really uncomfortable, call out to God for help. But know that the most important thing he's going to tell you in response to your call is let's be friends again. It's all about that relationship. He's going to call you to sit down at his table. He's going to call you to sing the songs of eternity with him. He's going to call you to live as if you're friends. I asked Tana, what do you do at home? I pray. I teach my kids to pray. We study. We sing. We serve our neighbors. Yeah. Sounds like God's friends, doesn't it? Yeah, cool way. Okay, so let's go on. And then verse 11. Verse 11 is this amazing moment. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, 
where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, there's several things you need to think about when, when this story comes. The first is, where was this happening? Hello? Where was it? Okay, th there's this giant oak tree, and there's a threshing floor. No, there's no threshing floor. There's a wine press, right? So we're up in the mountains. It's like being in the Napa Valley and going way up in some of the back hills. And there is actually a wine press out there. It's a hole in the ground that's probably about, oh, four meters wide, about 12 feet, circular of some form. It's got some kind of a hard base on it and tubes going out from it so that when you get to the, the wine time, you pour all the grapes in and people dance around until finally you start getting all of this grape juice moving out down through that pipe and it's caught and that's how you make grape juice. It's just that simple. But he's threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, there are several things you need to think about if he's threshing wheat. How'd he get it there? Hello? He had to carry it. Now, chances are he didn't carry a whole lot. This is not where you're going to have a whole wagon of wheat going up the hill to the wine press. No, the only way that's going to happen is in one of those great big old baskets from those years. Basket that's about this big around at the top and is pointed at the bottom and is lashed onto his forehead with a leather strap. And so he's got that thing full of wheat and he's got something else on top of it so it doesn't look like wheat. And he's walking up the hill into the grapes. And it looks for all the world like he's going up there to prune grapes. He's going to go prune the vines, and he's walking up the hill, and you can imagine the Midianite soldiers on the other hill with their Nikon glasses, and they're looking at that. Who is that? Hey, that's Gideon. That's Joash's son. What's he doing? I don't know. Got a big basket on his back. Looks like he's going up to do something with the grapes. Boy, we're going to have good juice this year. <laughs> and they move on thinking about something else. He gets to the wine press, sets down the basket, dumps it out into the wine press, there already is a thick covering of wheat. Any of you ever raised wheat? Yeah. Have you ever walked? Have you ever threshed wheat with your feet? It's not a good thing. You do it with your sandals on because it's just not safe otherwise. Wheat really gets between your toes. It's not a nice thing. It's all stickery and dusty and nasty. And Gideon is busy thinking about the prophet. You forgot me. You forgot me. I did this. I did that. If you're doing all that stuff for now, how come you just disappeared? Where are you when we need you anyway? And he is busy working on all this. His sword is leaning against that great old oak tree. His basket's dumped over there. But he finally is to the point of actually doing all of the threshing. And he's working away at it. And all of a sudden, he realizes he's not alone. You ever been there? Where you know you're alone and you know there's somebody else with you? Or maybe you're in a classroom and you feel someone looking at you. Remember girls when the guy used to do that behind you? Or remember guys when the girl used to do that behind you? It's where that old song comes from. Some enchanted evening. You know, you can see this person across a crowded room and all of a sudden Gideon knows he's not alone. Somebody else is up there. Now, if you're smart at all, who is that somebody else? It's a Midianite. And it's a Midianite soldier who has followed you up the hill, who now sees what you're doing, and is standing there with his sword drawn, waiting to kill you and take the wheat from your wine press. Ha <laughs> ha, I gotcha. 
And Gideon senses his presence and realizes he's a far distance away from his sword. And so he just continues doing his thing without ever looking up, but slowly moves back until he thinks he's as close to the tree as he can possibly get. Spins around, grabs his sword, turns and points it at where he thinks the enemy's going to be. His sword is about at knee level on a warrior. He looks up, up, and the angel of the Lord says, Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> now, one of the things I love about God is his sense of humor. The person standing at the oak tree According to Ellen White, according to an understanding of the word Lord in the Old Testament, is Jesus Christ himself, creator of the world, redeemer of the world, Jehovah God, coming king. He's standing at the oak tree to talk to Gideon. Gideon has found him. He looks like a total doofus. Here he is trying to hide from Midianites, and he can't even do that well. And now all of a sudden he's ready to fight and he's not ready to fight at all. And, and, and God himself looks down at him and says, Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He's not a mighty warrior. Come on. And Gideon's response is so incredibly joyfully human that I love Gideon when he starts talking. Yeah, if the Lord's with me, how come he's not doing all the stuff my father said he used to do? How come? Oh, where's all this stuff about delivering us from Egypt? Where's all this stuff about? And Gideon gets into a big argument with God by saying, you are not doing what you said you'd do. If God is here, how come he's not doing anything? And Jesus looks at Gideon and says, why don't you go destroy Midian? Go ahead. You're strong. And Gideon says, I am not strong. I am the weakest in my family, and my family is the smallest in all of the tribe. We have nothing. We're just nobodies. I don't have any strength to go out there. There is nothing I can do against Midian. And God says, yes, there is. I will go with you. And Gideon stops. Suddenly he realizes who he's talking to. I will go with you. I am will go with you. And Gideon realizes who he, this is, this is Jehovah. What, what am I, how, how uh, where, uh, uh, and I love Gideon's answer. Excuse me, sir. If you are who you say you are, and if you really are going to send me with Midian, and we're really going to have a victory, uh, uh, <coughs> I need to go home and get something for you. Would you wait here? Point number one, when things are really awful, cry out to God. Point number two, when you and God start a conversation, make it an honest one. God is never offended when you argue with him. He's offended when you pretend something that's not true. Be who you are. Share what you're thinking. Give him your heart. Give him your worries. Give him your anger. Moses did it. Gideon did it. Jesus did it with his dad. 
God expects honest human people to be his friends. And Jesus said, I'll wait. And sat down beside the oak. Gideon? Oh, baby, he ran as fast as he could go back down that little, all the way down that little trail. And the Midianite soldiers said, what's that? What's that? It's Gideon. What's he got? Nothing. No, he's got the basket. It's empty. Boy, crazy guy. Forget him. He goes home and he looks around and his question is, what is the best gift I can give the Lord? You see point three already? Point three, give God your best. Not your worst, your best. And so he looks around. What do I have? What do I have that I could give God? Uh, uh, what do I have that I can give God? There's a goat. There's a goat. I could make, I could make goat chops. Now Gideon obviously is not a cook or a baker because what he does, by the way, he does make goat for God. How long does it take to do that, women? What's the first thing you have to do? Yeah, first thing you gotta do is catch the goat. <laughs> Those of us who spend a little time, it's not a fun thing. And so you catch, kill, uh, what comes next? You gotta have a filleting knife, you, you skin it, so you do it, and you get all your stuff. It, this is not an easy job. How long is this gonna take? Huh? All day? He's just asked Jesus, God, commander of the hosts of, of Israel, to hang around until he gets this thing ready for him? I asked a Waldensian lady one time, a baker, I said, uh, ma'am, as she was pulling her stuff out of the oven, how long would it take in getting to do that? And she looked at me and she said, I've thought about it, at least six hours. And I said, okay, cool, six hours. Let's say six hours. What happened to the universe for those six hours? So he gets the goat ready, and then he says, oh, can't do goat without bread. And so he goes into his mother's secret storehouse, the place they hide stuff from the Midianites. And he finds <laughs> a bushel of barley flour, almost full. And he says, this ought to do it. And he makes unleavened bread and uses the entire three-fifths of a bushel. How big a loaf can you make with a bushel of barley flour? And if it's unliving, how big is it? Well, just imagine that. And so he's all done. He's got the bread ready, biggest pizza you ever saw in your life. And he's got the goat ready, and he's got all of it and the right stuff, and he puts it back in there, and, and now he's got this pizza. Whoa! And he heads back up the hill. And as he gets about halfway up the hill, the mini nights are, what's that? I don't know, but you gotta look at this. And they're back and forth. Wow, what is that he's carrying? I don't know, it looks like a flying saucer to me. That's gotta be the biggest pizza on earth. That's just funny. What is he doing? I have no idea. He's crazy. Come on, let's go home. And he comes into the wine press of Oprah. Where is Jesus? Right where he said he'd be. Waiting. He stands up. Gideon. My Lord, I've been home and I found the best I could. We don't have much anymore. But I brought you some stew and, and I brought you unleavened bread. And you can hear a chuckle by the tree. That's the biggest loaf I've ever seen, Gideon. Why don't you put it over there on the rock? Yes, sir. Huh. Thank you, sir. And he puts it on the rock and he puts the stew on top of it. And then Gideon does the smartest thing recorded. He takes giant steps back. 
And Jesus calls forth a nuclear explosion on the rock. Fire explodes the meat, the bread, the rock, and God disappears. Gideon's immediate response is to collapse to the ground and scream out to heaven, I have seen God face to face. I'm going to die. He'd been told that all of his life. Be afraid of God. If you ever see him face to face, you will die. He's a terrible one. No. No. When you're in trouble, call out to God. When he answers, converse with him honestly as you would with a friend. Give him your very best. And you need not fear him, for he comes to you as you come to him. Friends. <laughs> there is no God present, but his voice is still there. Verse 23, but the Lord said to him, no visible presence anymore, peace. I'm going to die. I've seen God face to face. Peace. Isn't that wonderful that that would be God's first comment? Peace. Don't, when God says peace, he's giving you peace because there's something in your heart that's proclaiming war. You're terrified. You know you're going to die. You can feel the enemy's foot against your neck. You can feel the sword into your heart. And God says, peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. That's one of the most wonderful promises I know in Scripture. And it's given to Gideon at his moment of greatest terror. Now, we can spend a lot of time going through the Gideon story. And I love parts of the story, especially the part where he gets home, you know, and he finally is proclaimed to be the new judge. And he says, all right, we're going to go kill all the Midianites. And 33,000 men show up. And uh, God says, yeah, it's a few too many. Better let some go home. And so Gideon actually quotes Deuteronomy. He goes back to the Pentateuch. And he says, if there is anybody here who is afraid, you may go home. If there's anybody here who has just married a wife, uh, you may go home. You want to live with her because you're going to die in the battle. And if there's anybody here who has just planted a new vineyard or built a new house, you can go home too. 23,000 men walk home. I would have been one of those. I was afraid. 10,000 are left. And God says, yeah, still too many. And Gideon says, how do you mean it's too many? There's a billion of those Midianites down there in that valley, and you expect me to go with them with only 10,000 guys? And you say, that's too many? What's wrong here? Too many. Why? Because if you go down there with 10,000 people, you're all going to say, we did it! And forget me. So I want you to go down, just walk them through the brook. Let's see who really wants to be in the battle. And at the other side, Gideon stands there and says, I wonder if there's anybody who's going to be really in a hurry to go get the Midianites. And sure enough, by the end of the day, he's got 300 guys who didn't stop to drink or to fill their canteen or to get their camel back all cared for and back on their back and get all organized. No, there's only 300 of them who said, let's go. So it's Gideon and 300 guys. And it's now Gideon up on the hill. Valley is filled with the lights of Midian flickering everywhere. They're not afraid. <laughs> they know they're going to just kill every Israelite around. 
Gideon is in his tent. Well, you know what we could do? We could take the 300 guys, and I could give each of them a sword, and we could put them all the way around, and then we could just scream bloody murder, and each of us run down there. And that's a really stupid idea. And he takes that piece of paper, wads it up, and throws it into the trash can. And what we could do is, I know, I could get all 300 of them at once, and we could go down like a big pinch. Ah, and that's a stupid idea, too. And now, finally, he's got a trash can covered with bad ideas. And God says, how are you doing, Gideon? I'm worried! It's there. Are you afraid? Yes! Then I want you to take your servant Pura and go into the Midianite camp. I've got something I want to show you. Poof, God's gone. And why is it that when I'm at my point of greatest worry and danger, instead of sending me to, to, to someplace totally safe, God sends me into the middle of the Midianite camp. He still does it today. Remember Lawrence? So Midian, Midianite's down there. Pura and Gideon up here. And it takes a little while, but they finally got Midianite helmets, Midianite sandals, Midianite outfits. They've got their faces black, their hands black, and they're going down into the camp. They've actually got to sneak through their own sentry lines. And they finally get down the hill into the Midianite camp. Midianite tents, you've seen the picture in, the, in the, my Bible friends. And, and he gets all the way out until they're in the middle of all the tents. And Pura looks at Gideon and says, why are we out here? Why are we out here? We're here because God told us to come here. I'm afraid. I know. He told us to come if we're afraid. This is the place where fear goes away. Right. Wrong. I don't think so. About that time, somebody in the tent next to them screams. Now you missed it. About that time, somebody in the tent next to them screams. Pretty weak. Let's try it once more. That wouldn't scare me. I'm sorry, that was a good deal, though. I thank you for that. Hit it again. All right, y'all ready? And about that time, Gideon and Pura, leaning and wondering what on earth it is that God brought them down here to show them, all of a sudden, somebody in the tent next to them screams. And the next thing you know, you've got Gideon and Pura hugging each other for all they're worth out there in the middle of the midnight night camp going, oh, it's never going to die. And in the tent, somebody says, what are you doing? I just had a really bad dream. Yeah, right. You're always having really bad dreams. You're waking us up in the middle of the night. What's your stupid dream anyway? I, we, were all, we were all down here sleeping in our tents. And all of a sudden, this great big loaf of barley bread came rolling down the hill, landed on our tents, and squashed us all. And what do you like about this story? Have you ever seen this in Gideon before? It is one of the most wonderful things I know about God. God, in the middle of trying to encourage Gideon that everything was going to be okay, used the joke everybody was telling about him. Did you know that Gideon can't cook? <laughs> when he went down, he was trying to do something about the... You know, he said he met God up there and he met the angel. Yeah, just really funny. But he says he went, he went home and he used up all of his mom's barley flour. He made the biggest pizza thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Ha, 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 what a fool. When God wants to encourage Gideon, 
He tells the joke, but he tells it in a way that gives Gideon hope. And Gideon listens to the answer over there. He looks at Pora because the, the guy over here says, that's not a nightmare, by the way. That's going to be the real thing. If you saw that coming down, that means God, the Jehovah God has given Gideon wisdom and power, and we're all dead men. And Gideon and Pura give each other high fives. And don't even worry about trying to get by the sentries. They just walk right back up and say, All right, guys! They bring the 300 out. They distribute the trumpets and the pitchers with torches. Set their watches and prepare for victory. Four things I want you to know about God tonight. When everything is awful, call on God. He will probably not answer how you'd like. He'll probably send you a prophet. He may remind you that you are busy trusting a historical God rather than a personal friend and he want to change that. Because that's what God does best. is to take all those preconceived confusions about what we think he ought to be and suddenly show us who he really is. And when that starts to happen, be honest. Talk to him as you would talk to your spouse on a bad day. Candidly, openly, with your arms open in love. Fair? That's what God is after. He's after a genuine, honest, human God relationship. And he is eager to be in the middle of it. Call on God. He will answer. And when he does... Communicate, converse with him honestly. That's the real definition of prayer. And then you get to point three. Give him your best. Now, I don't know what that is for you. I know what it was for Gideon, or at least for Gideon's mom. <laughs> she lost her best, and Gideon gave his best. He didn't know what he was doing, but he did it anyway, because it was his best, and that's what God deserved. A lot of us give stuff. Not many give our best. That's a requirement. And then number four, <laughs> go wherever it is God asks you to go. And I promise you, you will find it is the most terrifying place on earth and the one place where you never have to be afraid. Now think about that in the practical reality of your life. I've watched that happen to people in boardrooms where there is no answer, where the problem is overwhelming. I've watched it happen in courts where the decision that's going to be made is going to be difficult and the judge looks to God and says, I don't know what to do with this, help me. And it's the most terrifying moment of the judge's life, and he has no reason to be afraid because God is his buddy on that bar. You know, it'll happen anyway, and it's different for you than it is for me, and it's different for you than it is for the person next to you, and it doesn't matter because the rules stay the same. Call out. Converse honestly. Give him your best. And when he sends you to the place of greatest terror, realize there is no reason for fear. Because God is your God. So that makes sense. It's such a simple little story that I have stretched too much tonight.
but I hand it to you. And the reason I do is because of Lawrence Tanabasi, who time and time again in my hearing has told me that those are the four most important things on earth. Lawrence, giving an evangelistic campaign on the island of Nikolufa. Someone comes to him that afternoon, evening, and says, we just got a radio message from your office way over on that other island. They need you to come home tonight, completely repack the launch, because you've got that Camp Re coming up and everybody else is confused. They need to make sure that you have packed in there everything you've got to have, and they've got to have it done tonight so that they can leave tomorrow or they're never going to make all the right appointments. So you need to get home. And Lawrence says, I can't get home. I don't have a boat. I can't get home. And the guy says, borrow one from one of the fishermen. It's not that hard. It's only, what, six hours back across the uh, strait? Yeah, I could probably do it. At the end of the campaign that night, Lawrence goes out, borrows the boat, and the fishermen, several of them, look at him and say, Lawrence, since you last did this several years ago, the currents have changed everything. And, you know, we used to be able to go just to the south of the little uh, Willow Island. And, and if you do that now, you end up where there's a bunch of antler coral and it's really high and you'll never get through. You'll get hung up on it take the long way on the ocean and instead of the three and a half hours it would take if you went the quick one it's going to take you about eight hours but you'll get there god bless lawrence agreed took off through the lagoon through the break in the coral started out towards the ocean route got about 20 minutes in and said yeah i can do this and turned toward the little island. As he got close to where he could see the island and its mangroves, he knew this was going to get a little dangerous. And so he grabbed his torch, uh, his flashlight. And he's got a 20-horse motor on the back of this canoe. And he's putzing along, and he takes the torch and looks out and says, oh, my lens. There are giant antler coral everywhere. And they're not just the big ones with a little pointy spiky staghorn coral. These are the ones that look like moose antlers. And there are hundreds of them, and they have grown bigger than he could ever have dreamed. And instead of being where he would like them to be, they are almost at the surface, and he realizes he is in big trouble. And then he hears one great. He reaches back, pulls up the engine, and takes his pole, and slowly starts moving through, trying with his torch and his teeth to see where he's going. As he pulls... Something weird seems to be happening. Every time he puts his pole in the water and moves forward, and he can see the sea urchins on the antler coral beneath him, as soon as he pulls his pole up, the canoe goes back where it was. As if someone is pulling opposite every time he pulls forward. I said, how'd you feel? And he said, scared to death. For I suddenly realized I was not alone in the canoe. There was somebody else there with me. I turned around and pointed the torch at him, and there was nobody there. Nothing. There was nobody with a pole. There was nobody with an oar. There was nobody with nothing. The, pole, the, the canoe was empty. It was me, a motor that was standing up, 
and a canoe that was going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth no matter what I did. And so at that point, I took one of the big oars. I put my pole down and I took the oar and then I just began paddling as hard as I could. And I looked back and watched as I would paddle. And every time I would put the paddle in the water and push it forward, there was a paddle in the back pushing the other direction. And I could see the results in the water even though I could not see the paddle. And I realized that I was not alone in the canoe. The devil was in that canoe with me. And the devil did not want me to go back there because something important was going to happen that that launch needed to get to to make it happen. And God wanted me on the launch and the devil didn't want me anywhere close to it. And so I just looked up into the sky and I said, big fella up top, big enemy got me back in boat and boat needs to go forward. You fix big enemy, I go. What was point two? <laughs> he walked back, dropped the motor into the pile that turned it on, sat down and gunned it. And as he did, two giant fluorescent lights, about 10 feet long each, lit up underneath his canoe. And he was able to use them as guides and slip through the antler coral all the way around Mangrove Island until finally he was back in the big channel and the lights stayed on until he pulled up at the dock next to the mission launch. And as soon as he pulled up and reached out and touched the mission launch, the lights went off. What'd you do then, I asked. He said, well, my heart was beating so fast. <laughs> I said, thank you about a hundred times. And then I moved everything around that needed to be moved around. I got back in my launch and I went home by the way of the ocean. I did. When everything starts to go wrong in your life, call out. When God answers, He will remind you of all the ways you have become separate. Talk. Talk, talk yourself back into friendship. Give him your best. And then he's going to do something awful. He's going to send you to the most terrifying place you could ever dream of. A place where there is no reason to ever be afraid. Lord, Thanks for being our friends. And thanks for reminding us that that friendship is the most important thing in the universe to you. Amen.